Pima, California. You're living in an augmented reality controlled by machines. Your ears are being fed by algorithmic music. Take back control by letting me take you down to the underground. Stonebone Radio. Mondays, 7 to 9 p.m., KPCA, 103.3 FM. The healing power of horses. That's what you can experience at the Well-Trained Horses Ranch when you give your time to help care for rescued horses that have suffered trauma and abuse. Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back for our every two-week session here at the studios of uh, the Petaluma Community Access. It's great to have with us today Dennis Posake, whose name might be familiar, I hope, to many of you. He was a recent candidate for city council, so he got his name out there. But behind the scenes over many years, and certainly of late, uh, very active in our community on behalf of the vulnerable in our world. So, Dennis, it's great to have you in the studio today. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. And I, you know, we didn't get a chance to put the music on, so my mind is, <laughs> you know, I've got to get into the right mode here uh, that we're here for this conversation. So. Dennis, tell, just as we always start, a little history. Uh, sure. Where did you grow up? What brought you to how long you've been in Petaluma? All that kind of good stuff. Sure. Well, I grew up in Richmond. I actually, I'm going to tell you a story, that a short story that I hope that uh, it was told during the election that I thought was good to kind of break the ice with folks, which was that uh, even though I, I grew up in Richmond, I didn't come to Petaluma until 19... Uh, uh, 91 to Sonoma County, 1982. Uh, but but growing up in Richmond, my grandfather worked for the Ford Motor Company, and uh, in the uh, early 50s, uh, they they closed the Richmond plant and moved to San Jose, so he had to move down there. And so for two weeks every summer, the grandparents would have all the grandkids uh, down to San Jose. To and 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 I was the oldest. Uh, I had a cousin a year younger than me and a brother two years younger than me. And um, we would get to wrestling and fighting and, you know, just creating havoc. And my grandmother would holler from the other room and say, Stop it, you kids, stop it. If you don't stop it, I'm going to ship you all to Petaluma. <gasps> oh, what a threat. <laughs> well, and Petaluma was the, yeah, uh, the point is that Petaluma was the edge of the earth to us in Richmond in those uh, days. Never mind San Jose. In Richmond, it was the edge of the earth. I had a great grandmother that raised chickens. Someone had to take her on the ferry to Marin and drive up to Petaluma every six months to get two dozen chickens that she would uh, treat uh, as her favorite pets until she ate them, and, and then she'd start over again. Wow. Mm, okay. All right, eating chickens, oh, raising them. Let's, okay. Uh, and so from oh, yeah. growing so, up and... So, so I grew up in... in uh, my folks were uh, uh, Republicans, uh, small business people. Uh, my grandfather had started a, a mom-and-pop grocery store in Richmond in what at the time was a Croatian-Italian ghetto. Uh, that was before World War II. During World War II, it became an African-American uh, ghetto, uh, if you will, due to uh, the northern migration of Africans-Americans from the south to work in the shipyards. And so I really grew up in, in uh, the, uh, the Richmond uh, ghetto over, over most of the years of my, you know, until I left for college. 
in your university and your professional life? You yeah, went I, on from there. Yeah, I uh, I went. I started out in engineering, uh, and uh, my uh, my social justice stuff sort of uh, gradually pulled me away from that, uh, such that uh, I decided that you know I moved toward bioengineering, and then couldn't get anyone uh, to uh, to. Uh, I was in graduate school at Stanford, and uh, when I um, was trying to get a mentor for a PhD in bioengineering, every all the answers from the different engineering professors were, huh, if you want to do that, you should go to uh, medical school. Mm-hmm. And so uh, eventually I did, and a much better choice for me than engineering. I already decided from a couple summer jobs I couldn't work in, uh, in uh, corporate engineering, and, uh, and it seemed like at that point in time most of the uh, – most of the uh, academic engineering was uh, sponsored by the Department of Defense. I had issues with Vietnam, such like that. Uh, so social justice was in your blood already at a young age. I, I think, yeah, I think it, you know, I think it probably started when I was in, uh, you know, working in the ghetto at my dad's store, and a kid came in wearing this uh, young kid. Uh, gosh, you know, I was in junior high. Uh, I had been, we, we bowled in those days, you know. We were on a bowling team every every school year. And uh, I, my sponsor one year was TV Patio, the local TV store. So this was a black shirt with my name on the front. And on the back, the uh, is it the ABC or the NBC Peacock, you know, the multicolored Peacock. And, and one of the young, you know, African-American kids came in wearing that shirt. And I knew my mom gave away shirts and stuff, but, you know, you could never be sure it was yours. Anyone could have got it at Montgomery Wards. When I saw that shirt, it sort of uh, really uh, 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 introduced me to the inequality in our country, I think. Yeah, and I, you know, I've always been fascinated with um, what happens inside of a person, particularly at a young age, that turns that switch uh-huh. on. Um, sometimes people attribute it to the climate in their house and how they were raised. Uh, sometimes it's the opposite of how they were raised, and they they realize yeah. that. So it's it's really a fascinating uh, twist in a human being where it gets gets turned on to this compassion and trying to understand the world, recognizing that there are all different kinds of human beings who have different ideas and languages and colors and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So you went on to medical school and practiced medicine. And uh, you were at Kaiser. You retired how long ago? Right. I retired uh, pretty much 10 years ago this month. Well, uh, congratulations. We should have a celebration. 10-year <laughs> anniversary yes, of retirement. Yeah, I'm not much of a, of a celebrator, I guess. Oh, but uh, okay. I enjoyed my time at Kaiser. Uh, I, I uh, Oh, you know, might as well be honest about things. One big reason I went to Kaiser, we were talking about it earlier, is because uh, the AMA called Kaiser Communists, you know, this is 1978. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and oh, the socialist system here must yeah. be communism, right? So I did general internal medicine for 10 years and uh-huh. then occupational and environmental medicine uh, for 20 years after that. Uh, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, I really, uh, not just the social justice stuff, but there's just a lot of things I had put off um, because I was practicing medicine full-time, and uh, I wanted to do those things, so uh, I retired from Kaiser as, as early as I could. I still do some uh, uh, charity work uh, in medicine uh, and enjoy that, especially working with medical students. Mm, I think it's, well, it's great to be able in retirement to offer when we can do it and when we want to do it, to offer our skills and yes. our talents that way. So you've been, you've joined the activist community uh, in Petaluma, and 
What you know? What are the areas you're involved in? What kinds of well, ways? Well, I don't know that it's the thing I spend the most time in now, but but the thing that I sort of have become the coordinator of in Petaluma is the Rapid Response Network. It's the the Petaluma. Uh, a subgroup of the North Bay Rapid Response Network, which covers uh, first Sonoma, then we added Napa and Solano counties, uh, all have the same uh, area code, makes it easy to do that with one phone number. And so uh, we have uh, been active now, or been, uh, what's the word, we've been live on our hotline for a, just over a year and a half now. Uh, yeah, rapid response sounds like an emergency medical system, so we're going to need you to yes. actually define right. rapid response for what. Right. So this is uh, to help uh, our immigrants in their interactions with ICE and other enforcement agencies of the government. Um, we have uh, several uh, groups in this regard. Uh, the most, the one people would hear of the most is illegal observers. These are folks that get texted. Uh, if someone calls the hotline, let me kind of give that yeah, while sure. we're at that. Sure. The hotline number is 800, uh, I'm sorry, 707-800-4544. And uh, we have operators uh, probably 97% of the time at this phone number. There are, there's the occasional shift that someone gets sick or something and doesn't get covered. Um, but uh, we have bilingual uh, dispatchers answering the phone who then are able through a... Uh, through software that we have to uh, um, basically text the 20 closest, approximately the 20 closest legal observers, people that are trained as legal observers, to go out and simply to observe, to bear witness to, to film the interaction between the person and ICE, if, if that is possible mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and available. Um, and so the legal observers do that. We now have 99 legal observers. Uh, we have a training in Petaluma. There are trainings in other spots of the county more frequently. Uh -huh. We have one every two, three months in uh, Petaluma. And as I said, we're up to 99 legal observers. And these are the folks bearing witness. This is our biggest group. Our second biggest group is the accompaniment group, which uh, then if, if someone is whisked away by ICE or another agency, um, this is a group that helps the family deal with the immigration crisis that results from the family being split up. Uh, and, and the family doesn't even have to be split. The family we've been the most involved with in Petaluma is Haitian, and they came across the border seeking asylum over two years ago and have been uh, really uh, very important to us at getting our feet on the ground and learning what we, what we need to do to help folks mm -hmm. because they, 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 were, they were as close to square zero as you could be starting out. Uh, they were about to be evicted from paying rent on one half of a living room in the vineyard apartment complex. And we were able to help them within the first six months uh, find help with all their other needs, find work for the uh, father. It's this family of five, three small children and, and two adults. And uh, we were able to help them with everything except the housing for a long period of time. And somehow, you know, on an income, well, they were finally able to get into an apartment in the uh, the vineyard uh, complex in uh, Petaluma, and uh, they. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how that happened actually, because their rent was $2,200 on an income of $3,000. They're paying you know 75% of their income in rent. I don't think they were going to be able to sustain that, and through some uh, miracle, they got a place in a subsidized uh, uh, apartment building in Bonner Park just uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, that's that's so they're actually here uh, going through a legal process uh, as asylees to 
gain uh, green card, gain citizen, uh, absolutely, yes, citizenship. Yes, yeah. So where are, do you are you familiar where they are in that process, and how's that moved along? Um, you know, the uh, father had a uh, a leg uh, band, you know, so they could keep track of him for about mm-hmm. six months, and then he had that removed. He still has to make monthly visits to San Francisco, and yet very little is happening. When they crossed in February of 17, they were given a uh, uh, their first follow-up appointment uh, in like January of 19, and that was... That was nothing happened there. They just confirmed that they had an attorney and that they still wanted to file for asylum. And they were given another, uh, and nothing else has happened except they have an out, another appointment in early 2021. That's, that is an amazing thing. And I know from the legal side, just from my own family experience, about what it's like to get relatives reunited just on a regular legal process, that some of the waiting periods are 13 to 17 years between application and allowing sibling reunification, parent reunification from people who are already American citizens. So it's an overwhelming process in in all ways and uh, not not even dealing with the, quote, crises of uh, ice raids and stuff like that. So, yes, it's complicated. So I'm not surprised, actually, that there's this theory, but there's a certain absurdity to it that... uh, leaves them in limbo in terms of knowing what their lives are going to be like and feeling a sense of stability in this country. And I know it's not this simple, but it's like I used to say in my early days at Kaiser when when somebody perhaps had to wait three months for an orthopedic surgery appointment, uh-huh. you know, and I'd say, well, so what's the wait going to be next next month, four months? And they'd say, no, we can, we're able to keep it at three months. And I would say, well, you can keep it at three months. Why can't you keep it at three weeks, you know? Right. And it's kind yeah. of the same thing with this, yeah, you know, although... Uh, uh, it seems like the, the the weight is extending each year you right, know, in this right. case. So we, we really have to overhaul the immigration system. So do you have a sense of the uh, climate among the uh, immigrant population, both those who are undocumented and those who are here legally and in process? I right? think they're all very worried, yeah, uh, particularly yeah. whenever anything happens, like the sweep of the chicken uh, processing plants in Mississippi. Uh, yeah. You know, we have our, uh, our own Petaluma Poultry Company, and... Uh, I am, there are probably undocumented folks that work there and are especially worried, and even ones who are documented get worried uh, because you you just don't know what's going to happen here. Yeah, so there's one question that I I ask all the time, and and as you well know, I certainly am concerned and support the work that you're doing and uh, the lives of the people who are here and how they're treated and the family structures and the children who have testified about how fearful they are that their parents are going to be taken away from them, even though the children are American-born, all the, all those complex and painful issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, answering that ultimate question of, so what about the fact that the initial getting into this country was done by many illegally? How do we, how do we deal with that? How do the activist organizations understand the issue of legal entrance versus illegal entrance and how our country handles them. And part of it is exacerbated, certainly, by the current administration and stuff like that. But do you have a response to that? Well, a hard question. Myself, like many people, all four of my grandparents immigrated to the U.S. in the 1920s 
all all separately. They weren't married. They weren't together at that time. So four different people came across the ocean to this country, to Ellis Island. And um, uh, I can't imagine. I've been to Ellis Island to look through the ship stuff they came on. You know, I can't imagine that that all four of them got through without breaking a law somewhere. You know, I think that things were complicated even then. Uh, I feel like people. People, you know, we're all so conservative at the depth of our core uh, that people don't leave a place in, unless they just can't see a way forward is what I feel. My grandfathers, I know, came because they didn't see uh, any any future for them in, in what's now Croatia, what then was part of Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, I'm not... I'm not so clear. My grandmothers weren't so clear on, you know, why they came. One came, one came younger with her parents. Um, uh-huh. But, but I, I think uh, I, I don't. I don't think people migrate um, willingly. In yeah, willingly. Yeah, it, oh, yeah. There, there's usually there's a war involved, or there is a depression involved, or there is poverty. threats, poverty. There are uh, threats of safety. Uh, certainly. Our Haitian friends that came here came because uh, uh, essentially the wife had seen her brother murdered by her uncle to get their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they felt their uncle was affiliated with organized crime. And he said that if she, if she ever came back to the house, he would kill her as well. Uh, yeah, those are the threats. Now, that you know, I, 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 uh, I don't vet all these things, but that's, that's the story. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I just, yeah, I, I, I think... People, uh, you know, it's it's one thing for someone who's already here, you know. And again, we know that that these these immigrants do commit crimes at a lower level than, than well, that part citizens. Of that yes, yes. Yeah, although um, it has been played up the opposite, right? It's just, uh, it's just uh, not and true. not to say that some of them aren't going to commit crimes. That's a that's a human condition, I'm afraid. And and I I just I believe with globalization, you know, I have these three t-shirts that I don't see anyone else wear, but they say citizen of the world, and I feel like we're all citizens of the world, and I feel like we've had something to do with causing these conditions that force people to migrate. Absolutely, and if we look at uh, American policies back in over that past century in the Latin American countries and uh, creating certain conditions there that make life difficult for the residents, for the people who would likely seek Mm -hmm. a better place to live. I know, I, I think we had talked on the phone, I, uh, when the announcement came out from the administration about uh, raising the wealth level of the immigrants the other day, and uh, the reporter asked a question about the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. and it says, give us your poor and your tired and uh, your hungry. Uh, what does that mean in this country now, given that this proposed change to the laws, which is now going to create more havoc within the immigrant community and less stability for many, many lives who, of people who are legally in our country. Don't, we're not even dealing with uh, those who may have come here against the law, so to yeah. speak. And I don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any border should be totally open, you know, uh-huh. just totally open, but uh, I do believe we have to give people the benefit of the doubt when we've been involved in causing some of the problems that cause them to migrate. Right, and I, I think uh, the Rapid Response Group has really uh, done a wonderful job and an important thing over the past two years or so since it started. And uh, I, I know there's a training coming up on September 26th. September 26th yeah, is, is the uh, 
uh, Know Your Rights uh, uh, uh-huh. training for, this is for immigrants uh, in societies, okay, uh-huh. put on by several of our uh, local uh, uh, legal aid groups. Uh, the only one I, I, I forgot to write this down, this, this meeting on September 26th is at 3 p.m., 3, 3 p.m., and um, it is sponsored by One Justice, so you have to call in an RSVP in order to take part in this. It's all by appointment, and if you go to the One Justice website, I believe uh, maybe not, it'll be another week or two before it's there, but the details of the number to call to make your appointment will be there. Okay. Uh, we also have legal observer trainings on a regular basis and occasional accompaniment trainings, and uh, we have meetings. I, if I could, anyone who would like to be part of Rapid Response or know more about it could email me at uh, my first initial D, my last name, postak at comcast.net. Okay, that's great. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot of other, I, I constantly get people wanting to help in our world in this complex uh, situation in which we find ourselves these days. And uh, certainly the immigration issue has become a, a major a major piece here in our country. And uh, thank you for the work uh, that you're doing to try to help secure uh, the lives of uh, the residents of Sonoma County, people who are living here. So what, aside from a rapid response, what else are you into? Um, I've been working on the campaign in Petaluma to uh, pass the $15 minimum wage, which uh-huh. we were able to do. We didn't quite get everything we asked for, but we got 90%, I would okay. say, of what we asked for in that regard. Again, this is, is part of this, this. Well, I just remember back to the 60s when everyone who worked in Richmond could live there in one way or another. Smaller places, boarding houses, you know, everyone who wanted to live there could live there. I don't see that now, and I, I think uh, that that has to adversely affect the sense of the community, uh, of the whole community. Well, actually, in response to that, the uh, Petaluma Community Relations Council is going to do a series of programs this coming year, this coming fall and in into the winter, uh, starting with uh, you know, trying to understand the issue of affordability and uh, how complex that is for us in Petaluma and what it me- what the current situation means and where we kind of go from here. Obviously, part of that is this uh, minimum wage increase. So what part didn't you get in the uh, in the city council's uh, Just uh, a little better enforcement language. Uh, uh-huh. The city, we would have liked them to take a bigger role in enforcement. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's a lot more complicated than that, but, but just to keep that simple. Um, I, I You know, to me, if I could... Uh, move on to that affordability issue. Uh-huh. Uh, I went to the city council goal setting, and and what I constantly heard from everyone was that we all we can do is work around the edges. We have to wait for the state and the feds to do stuff. But one thing that doesn't get stated is that it's always easier to access that state and federal money if the city has a few million in seed money. And I think it's very important that whatever tax they you know whatever new revenue source they tap next year, that some of that goes for some seed money for affordable housing. Okay. Affordable housing, of course, that's on the list, and uh, the whole housing issue, transportation. Wow. Lots of stuff. Yeah. It It must have been complicated. It must have been complicated for you running for uh, city council to have to become uh, conversant in the, the complex issues. Well, certainly, I was able to go a lot. I had to go a lot deeper than I'd been up to that right, point. And, right. and, and at the same time, even though you must go a lot deeper in educating yourself, you need to 
go the other way in simplifying what you say to people at their door. Uh-huh. So what was it like running for city council? Why did you reach that uh, decision, and what was the experience like for you? Um, it's something I never thought I'd do. Yeah. I reluctantly ran for senior class vice president in high school because my basically my advisor told me I had to. Um, yeah, but I, I didn't win that election either. I hadn't run for anything since. I, I really thought that was not me, that I was a behind-the-scenes person. Uh, but as it got close to the election, and uh, I didn't have people that I was uh, happy to vote for, I decided to run. And uh, actually, uh, it was a good experience. I, uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think I'd learned nearly as much from doing it again. Uh, I'm hopeful to uh, get some younger folks to do it. I, I, I am concerned if I ran again that uh, uh, I'd be closer to the age Joe Biden is now and make some of the gaps he's making, and that wouldn't make me happy. <laughs> that wouldn't make you happy. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the things you learned? What did you learn about our community, and <clears throat> what was you that know, experience like? Uh, this is weird, but um, I, I learned that if I was king of the world, I'd probably make people move their city at least every 25 years. Because what I found was people that spent their whole life in Petaluma have more unhappinesses with it than the people who haven't been here their whole life. Because you've seen all the changes. Uh, by by moving around, you don't you don't uh, somehow I think it it softens the the amount of change you see. That's an interesting observation. I, I, yeah. I understand that because people often say, "Oh, in the good old days, yeah. oh, it used to be so in Petaluma." The streets weren't crowded, uh, they were less bumpy, uh, all those kinds of memories, the collective memory, yeah. uh, leads to discontent. Right, yeah, right. no, that, that I was, I, I didn't go into it having any idea I would come out feeling that way, but uh, that, that's one of the biggest uh, things I, I learned. Uh, yeah, and of course that, that, that observation goes in contradistinction with the notion that that the population is better off when they're more stable and less mobile. Right, right. right. Uh, people and, have and roots. I, I'm sure you could argue that the sense of community is not right. as good if people are moving around. Right. And again, I don't think it has to be every every five or seven years, but maybe every 25 would be good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it in 25 years. Yeah, How's okay. that? All right. Well, I want to, you know, first of all, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come to our program today, uh, for bringing your uh, observations. Uh, the Rapid Response Network and uh, your leadership and others, too, have uh, made a big difference in the life of our immigrant community here in Sonoma County and hope that you will continue your good work in our world. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're all listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. During our second segment, we'll be meeting with uh, Brian Wilson, who is in the music department at Sonoma State University and head of the Jewish Studies Department. Please join us in three minutes.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. We are in our studios with our second guest, Dr. Brian Wilson from the Music Department at Sonoma State University, head of the Jewish Studies Department, uh, member of my community and part of our community. I see him regularly, so... That's the way it is. It's good to see him here, though. I never saw him on a Thursday morning at uh, <laughs> 10.30 before. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you you know, the routine here is to get a little background on, okay. on people and uh, uh, find out where we started with a, a segment on immigration and all that kind of stuff today, which mm-hmm. is complex. And hopefully this is a little uplifting yeah. and uh, less complex in many ways, etc. So, first tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were raised, and oh, okay. how um, you got into this music business. Well, <clears throat> I'm about to start my 33rd year teaching at the university level, and my 38th year teaching altogether. Wow. And this is the beginning of my 19th year at Sonoma State University. I taught back east before we moved out here, uh-huh. and uh, I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I heard of Boston. I heard, <laughs> I, I heard it there, yes. Okay. Yeah, we, um, in a uh, city called Lynn, which is about 10 miles north of Boston. Um, um, I'm, you know, it's a, it was a kind of a factory town, uh, and... Let's see, I think, how did I get into music? I think I was born this way. I just remember... Mm-hmm. Um, begging my parents uh, to let me take up the trombone and they kept saying oh no 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 you want to you don't want to do that and so finally i won and started the trombone in the 4th grade and then uh started playing piano uh in the 7th grade and quickly started composing right after that mm-hmm. and um, um went to music school and um taught in the, taught in the um uh, in the trenches there for a while before I uh, taught uh, university. I taught grades 4 through 12. Wow, okay. But I was re- very lucky. I went to New England Conservatory of Music. Uh, this is, uh, they used to tell us, it's the oldest and the bestest conservatory in the country. Would Juilliard agree? Uh, apology to my friends at Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and then um, I went to uh, graduate school the first time at the University of Chicago. Uh, and then, uh, then at that point, I, I felt like I wanted to be a productive member of society. So that's when I taught uh, in the secondary schools. And then I went back for my doctorate at the University of Arizona. Um, wow. so Going from Chicago to yeah, Arizona, exactly. that's a climate, well, a kept, climate change. Yeah. Kept moving west, as you, you can see. Kept moving yeah. west, yeah. But actually, then I got my first, uh, my first uh, college job in upstate New York, which is where I met my wife. Uh-huh. Uh, and was um, really entrenched there at that school, Hartwood College, a tiny little college there. Um, and um, we had gone on sabbatical. Uh, we lived in Greece for a semester. Um, we took a boat to Israel, I want to tell you. Wow. First of all, for, quote, spring break. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when well, we... Now, got, it's not Daytona Beach, I <laughs> Yeah, right, yeah. But then when we go back to upstate New York and was facing all that snow again, I said, I, I don't know. I know 
don't think I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Can I look for a job in a more temperate climate that reminds us of Greece? So here I am. And that's how you got to Petaluma. That's Lumpa how we got here, yeah. And they were, they were just building the Green Music Center at the time, and it uh-huh. seemed like a good place to be. And now I can't imagine living anywhere else. We love it here, and and the university has been a very good place to, to work. And certainly the music department at the mm-hmm. Green Music Center has blossomed, oh, yes. so to speak, in, over the years. Yeah, and indeed, yeah. And plays a vital cultural role uh, in our community. Yes, yeah. yeah. So what is there about music that touches your heart? Well, that's a tough that you've question. Given your life, <laughs> that you've given your life to it. Mm-hmm. People like to say that that music is the universal language. And I don't think that's quite accurate because a language uh, generally means has the same meaning uh, to different people. But what is universal about music is its ability to touch the emotions. Mm -hmm. And this is where musicians live. Uh, expressing emotions and bringing that to audiences. So I think there's it's the communication part of it. Yeah, there's but really there's really music in uh, each culture has its own music forms mm-hmm. and expressions. Uh, religious systems, spiritual systems, and Buddhism, Judaism, mm-hmm. Christianity, all kinds of different music is an important part of all of it. So. That's a, that's a common denominator, certainly, mm-hmm. among all of them. Absolutely. And babies sing before they can talk. Babies sing before they can talk. That's probably true. Is that what that is? <laughs> okay, I have to remember yeah. that. Okay, babies sing. Yeah, they're before. singing. They're singing. That's <laughs> true. That part is true. So, this. this um, uh, uh, do you have any uh, opinions on modern music? That I know you're. Very heavily into classical uh, music and jazz yeah. kinds of things. So, modern, what's that? What's that like for you? I don't know much about it. Okay, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I know a lot about classical music and, uh-huh. and jazz. I, I don't really know much about popular music at all. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, you ever, I mean, when you hear it, is it, um, is it foreign to you? Is it is it like, okay, it's there, but mm-hmm. what's that experience like? I'm trying to imagine it, that's all. Uh, to me, it's just not as interesting as, okay. as classical and jazz. Okay, uh-huh. so it's like going into a library and say, this book is interesting, but this book, you know, I might read biographies, but the history of Waterloo is not interesting to me. So, you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. a, a personal taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any favorite uh, classical composers? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge Mahler freak. Ah, you're a Mahler freak. <laughs> <laughs> a Mahler freak. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and Mozart as uh-huh. well. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the Russian composers. Uh-huh. Um, Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. And yeah, and these, so uh, these are all pretty famous names. Sure. Uh, yeah. They're all pretty famous names. I saw somebody sent me a YouTube about this 15-year-old girl that 
just composed an opera. I saw that. Deutsch, on Deutsch, Deutsche was her name, I think. Her last name is Deutsche. Alma Deutsche. She's British, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she I saw that started doing music at the age of four. Right. And wrote her first composition at seven. Right. And then Zubin Mehta just performed her two-hour opera that she wrote mm -hmm. in uh, Vienna, I believe. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, she, clearly she's she was born this way. Yes, yeah. Um, so that's a testimony to this your statement of being born with this music bug inside of mm -hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, I saw that segment on I think it was on sixty minutes yeah. or something, and uh, it was um, it's interesting because she's very skilled, but the music is very much. Um, um, you know, late 1700s in the Mozartian style. Mm. She's got that down. Wow. And why? I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, she mimics that style, but it's it's quite astounding. So when you, uh, you know, often I'll, I'll, or occasionally, I'll use the word occasionally instead of often, I'll read a review of a classical music con concert, and uh, the reviewer will uh, use uh, kind of poetic kinds of language to refer to how the orchestra is performing the the piece. Mm -hmm. And frankly, as an observer of it, I may appreciate the music, but it's, it, I mean, it's almost like wine tasting. You know, it has a blush of blueberry. Really, <laughs> I, I, you know, I couldn't taste it. When you hear the when you hear the classical music, would you write reviews like that? Would that be the same? Is that is that a real experience? Um, or what, what's when you read those reviews? What's that like for you? I tend not to read reviews. <laughs> <laughs> You're avoiding the problem. There we go. Yeah, because I I just uh, I don't experience the music in the same way. I just don't experience it that way. Uh huh. So I'm just wondering if that's uh, because I know that the orchestras and the performers are looking for quote, positive reviews. And sure, so yeah. The language that's used to talk about how well they're playing or how well they're not playing. It's, uh, Probably me, my description would be more technical. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, like wine tasting, it's, it's you know, if, if you like it, art, if you like it, if you it. like it, that's great. Right. And how you like it, it, it everybody's going to like it in a different way. Every, that, I think, you know, and that's, that's all, ultimately that's all fine. Yeah, yeah, that ultimately is the point. So you, uh, aside from, so what do you, what kind of classes are you teaching this semester? Uh, this semester, I'm teaching uh, all music theory classes uh -huh. uh, at various different levels. Uh -huh. um, teaching um, a 20th century analysis class where we're going to be um, analyzing um, Debussy and Stravinsky and Shostakovich uh, and other 20th century composers, and then teaching a, a harmony class, mm. and then I'm also teaching a... Harmony, uh, can you bring that to, like, Congress in Washington? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do that harmony class. Yeah, they yeah. need that. They need that. Uh, and a class uh, um, for non-majors uh -huh. called Music Theory for Non-Majors. Mm. Um, and I'm, I also uh, direct the Brass Ensemble. Oh, okay. Uh, so, um, and then uh, also, you know, um, administering the Jewish Studies program right. as well, yeah. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to transition over to that. I was going to say that in one sense, music fills a big part of your life, obviously, mm -hmm. but you also are chair of the uh, Jewish Studies Department. So. Uh, yeah, well, it's not a, uh, it's a small um, a program, uh -huh. 
where students can get a minor in Jewish studies uh -huh. by taking uh, five different classes. Uh, and so I started doing that uh, four or five years ago. I was asked to, uh, to take that on. So it's been great. Uh, I, I don't teach the classes. I just administer the program. Uh -huh. um, but um, the, this semester, uh, we're offering a class uh, called The Evolution of Antisemitism. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is taught by um, uh, Henry Schreiben, a rabbi down in Marin. And um, that was uh, when I first took over. That was one of the first changes that I made. The name of the class used to be The History of Antisemitism. And I felt that it should be changed to the evolution of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when you say history, that means something has already happened. Uh, but as we know, we still face these challenges. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually taught a class called The Foundations of 20th Century Anti-Semitism, mm. going back into the 1800s and some of the classical oh. works that led into oh, yeah. Hitler's rise and the mm -hmm. anti-Semitism that was current in the 20th century. Right, yeah. Um, and we offer an introduction to Jewish studies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a general history of the Jewish people. Uh -huh. um, and for the last three years, we've had a visiting professor from Israel, and that's been very interesting and enriching for our students as well, uh, Ziv Rabinowitz. Yes, Dr. Uh, Rabinowitz actually did a lecture at B'nai Israel uh, a few months ago uh, on yes. the Israeli elections, which are mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure he has other comments to make about it. Yes, in fact, uh, I was at that lecture. Yes, yes. And um, I think it was right before the election. Uh -huh. So now, um, uh, coming up in September, he's doing another talk, uh, the Israeli elections part two, because, yeah. as you know, um, they couldn't form a government. Mm -hmm. uh, so now they're trying again with another election. So, um, yeah, Ziv is more uh, into, um, he's more of a political scientist. So a little bit out of my expertise. Right, uh, in the Jewish yeah. studies piece. Uh, yeah. Studying the history. More of cultural, history. artistic, right. and, uh -huh. and so on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's good to have them, have, have him around. And the way I brought these things together was with this Jewish music series. Uh, where I put the Jewish and the music together. So we, <coughs> we teach a class <coughs> called the Survey of Jewish Musics. And the S is on purpose. The plural is on purpose because what is Jewish music? There's so many different kinds. There's klezmer music and cantorial music and Yiddish songs and, and on and on and on. So the class explores that question, what is Jewish music? And... Uh, we have about 80 students enrolled in that class this coming semester. It keeps growing. Uh, and uh, just about every other week, we bring in uh, uh, guest artists, uh, like live musicians, to play for the students. And those are the concerts that we open up to the public. Uh, and that's been um, enormously successful. Is there a website where someone might yeah. find out about that? Yeah, you can go to just the music department website, music.sonoma.edu, uh -huh. and you can you can find the link to the Jewish Music Series okay. right there. Okay, it's going to be um, six concerts. Um, 
two in September, two in October, and two in November. Uh, and they're all Thursday evenings at 6.30 at the Green Music Center uh, in Schroeder Hall and the Recital Hall. Uh, so, um, any highlights of the... Oh, I'd love to tell you about them, yeah. Oh, a little bit. Okay, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, the first one is, um, well, two of them now are, are featuring uh, visual media. So, the first concert is uh, Cantor Sharon Bernstein, and uh, this is going to be on September 5th. And she has these paintings uh, by um, uh, an artist from Poland who painted these um, painted these paintings of his uh, village in Poland before the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And she does a pairing of each of these paintings with different Yiddish songs. Yeah. And so we're going to be projecting the slides and then she'll be singing. She plays the piano and sings. So it's going to be really great. And the last one also uh, uh, is uh, a pairing with visual media. This guy, uh, Sheldon Brown, who's uh, a jazz musician, has written original music to a silent film, uh, The Gollum. Mm -hmm. uh, the Gollum, as you know, right, right. is the uh, Frankenstein figure made out of clay uh, that comes to life to protect a, a village. But anyway, it's, The Gollum has been set many, many different ways, but he found this silent film from the 20s and they um, and he wrote music to it, so right. we're, we're going to be they're going to be performing the live music and showing the film at the same time. Right. So okay, yeah. And then another highlight is um, um, uh, we have a singer coming from Armenia, uh, and um, she is going to be accompanied by the women's uh, vocal group Kitka. They're very well known in the Bay Area, and they're going to be presenting a concert called "Love Songs and Lullabies to Lost Homelands." Okay. Uh, so she does some Jewish songs, but she also does some Armenian songs, and that's going to be. So we're going international with that right. one. Um, and then um, we have on um, the Tzvi Brida or Two Brothers. This is going to be. Um, uh, blues and pop and classical with Yiddish uh, songs, uh, a singer and an accordion player. And then um, the uh, Varetsky Pass, which is a, a well-known klezmer group from mm -hmm. East Bay, is going to perform. And that concert is uh, going to be on the Thursday between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh -huh. So... Um, so I'm going to do a shofar demonstration on oh, that good. concert. Yeah. Well, you'll have practiced a couple of days exactly. before at yeah. the synagogue. Well, right. I'll be okay. in shape. You'll be in good shape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, and then the, la the, the sixth one, I'm, I'm telling them out of order. You can That's go okay. to music.sonoma.edu. And you see the order, right? To see the order, yeah. But the other one is uh, my composition teacher from the University of Arizona is coming, uh -huh. uh, who also happens to be Jewish. And he's written a song cycle called Breath in a Ram's Horn. Mm. Uh, so we're going to be um, presenting his song cycle with uh, uh, soprano Carol Menke. Um, 
And then on that same concert, we're going to do one of my pieces, uh, my song cycle, uh, called uh, Byron Songs. I wrote these songs um, based on Lord Byron's uh, book, Hebrew Melodies. Uh, so I, I, I chose six of those poems and, and set them to music. So that should be like quite a, co- a kind of series. Should be public is invited. You can please uh, check out music. Uh, Sonoma.edu. Yes. Uh, and you'll find the information about the Jewish music series. That's mm-hmm. great there. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you piqued my interest with this, uh, the musics of the Jewish people, mm-hmm. or however you describe that. A friend of mine, David Beale, um, uh, co edited a book called The Cultures of the Jewish People, mm. in which he's trying to, he tries to demonstrate or does demonstrate that. It's not just one monolithic right. group of people, but various cultures. So if you parallel the two topics, each of those cultures is going to have its own musical uh, ideas and expressions that come out of each culture. Yeah. So then there's that great theoretical question, that, um, which is, uh, if a composer is... Jewish, does that make it Jewish music? Exactly. And what is your answer to no, that? No, I, I only ask the questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh no, I get, I get to ask the questions. No, you ask the questions, and we continually ask that question. Right, like, right. Uh, so, what about Mendelssohn? So, yes. Mendelssohn had Jewish heritage. He wasn't Jewish, he wasn't raised Jewish. Right. Um, his grandfather was. Right. Uh, so, he has Jewish blood. Right. So, when Mendelssohn writes music, is it Jewish music? Right. It's a very difficult, it's a very difficult and an exciting question, which is why we have to teach the class. Get, yeah. We have to teach the class, <laughs> yeah. and then the, the the negative side of that, um, if the composer, particularly Wagner, right. historically, uh, who is known as an anti-Semite, right. um, for a long time his music was forbidden in Israel, right, right. and um, you know just because if the music is beautiful and the a uh, composer is an evil, uh, evil or done something wrong in the world. What's that connection like? Does or has these um, these views? Right, right, right. Does that change the nature of the music and the beauty of the music? I believe it was Leonard Bernstein that was the first one to present um, um, Wagner's music in Israel. Uh huh. Yes, I believe it was, and and it was uh, really controversial, of course. Right because they had never done that before. Right. They had never done that before. Yeah. What would you, what would you how do you feel about that, uh, that, that kind of question? Um, I mean, if the answer is, if, if the person just has Jewish blood or is born right. Jewish and writes a beautiful song that has nothing to do with Jewish culture, Jewish experience, not reflective of anything within the content of Judaism, mm-hmm. um, if that's not Jewish music, then it's the same thing. Do we separate the music from the composer in the other way, too? I know. <laughs> it's a hard question. You want yeah. to leave it for your students to be able to answer that's that That's an excellent, excellent question. Yeah. And what about Mahler? Right. So right. Mahler was, was Jewish, right. raised Jewish. But his music was right. Um, there, are some, there are some, like in the first symphony, uh-huh. Uh, there's in the middle movement. There's a spot where uh, it breaks into what a lot of people call a village band. This is a klezmer band. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. This is clearly a klezmer band. Right, right. So is is that does that make a Jewish music? I don't necessarily think so. Right. Um, my mom used to say, um, oh, but I can hear the Jewish tear in his music. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So these are really complicated and yeah, wonderful they, questions. Right. Well, and they actually go back to your opening statements about uh, what music meant for you and what music means to people and what the language is, mm-hmm. that it has something to do with emotions. So filtered through each listener's Right. Uh, experience in life and mm-hmm. emotions is going to be the result, you know, the, what happens to that music once it gets in there. Yeah. I, I was thinking of the relationship between the Moldau and the Hatikva, yeah. right, and uh, that is derived from this classical piece. Right. And uh, uh, yet when we hear, as the Jewish people, when we hear Hatikva, we don't think Moldau. We're not, we're not thinking of a river in, in the Czech Republic, <laughs> in the yeah. Czech Republic, yeah. we're hearing the national anthem of the of Israel, right. of the Jewish state, and so it's uh, it's you know it's it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating experience. Yes, yeah, the meaning has changed. They yeah. sort of appropriated it. There needs to be a course in the psychology of music, <laughs> right? Is sure. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, really. Absolutely. Uh, it goes together. Yeah, I'm sure there's a course. Oh, there are such. Yeah, things. there are there's such a courses lot, in there. A lot written on this. As yeah. Well. So it's uh, be interested to, hear, to have a conversation with you uh, off air or on air after the course on the musics of the Jewish people mm-hmm. to see how the students are responding because I'm sure you're going to be asking them uh, to write some yes. reflections on some of the questions that we're talking about right now, right? And what that experience is like for them. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to be Jewish to be a Jewish studies minor. And you don't <laughs> have to be Jewish to be a Jewish studies minor. Like you don't have to be French to be a French major. That's true. Uh, that is so, true. you know, the, this class, and that's really the one of the main purposes of the Jewish studies program is to um, present this content to as many people as possible uh, with the goal of interfaith, promoting interfaith understanding. Yeah. So... In the experience, how much of the registration for the class has been outside of the Jewish community, generally? Well, the the class is all all Sonoma State students. Right, right. No, I understand that. Yeah. But has there been a lot of non-Jewish registrants for the class? Or well, we don't we know. We don't know. It's a public university. It's a public so. university. <laughs> so you can't even answer the question um, because it. Uh, but sure, I would. I would venture to say that the majority of the class are, are not Jewish. Jewish. Are not are Jewish. Not okay. Jewish. All right. And I think that's great. Absolutely I great. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And I appreciate their, uh, their coming forward and trying to uh, learn something yeah, about absolutely. Jewish culture. I want to thank you so much for coming to our studio on uh, this beautiful day and uh, look forward to continued conversations with you. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California.